This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome back, and thank you for setting aside some time with us today. Today, I am your host, Jennifer Shemansky, but today I'm joined with two of our other hosts, Rasa Fumagali and Bridget Smith. Hi, ladies. Hi, Jen. Jen. I'm Bridget. Hi, Rasa. We are ready to finish up our first year of the podcast, and we thought we would start an annual tradition where we do a little bit of a or a little bit of a mailbag discussion. And so we thought we would just kind of sit down and talk through a few of the things that we get asked questions about all the time. There are maybe some more of the quirkier things that you don't see very often. So with that in mind, we will go ahead and get started. Ross, I know we get these questions all the time, and I'm, I'm sure you do a lot of this kind of because you come a little bit or more often um, from the plaintiff side. But what about those um, CMS determinations that we get when they're final, but then maybe once in a while, CMS comes back uh, with a change in it that we didn't try and solicit from CMS that they kind of just come back with. And I think a lot of the times what happen is happening in those situations are the claimant or claimant's attorneys are making that contact with CMS that's initiating that change. Right. So Jen, I actually saw this when I was focused more on the defense, but the way that this popped up was, I vividly remember this. We had a CMS determination where when we submitted the proposal, we excluded the very expensive drug Actique because it was off-label. So the cost of this drug would have been about $200,000 or so. CMS agreed with us in excluding it from the determination. We're in the process of finalizing it. And then lo and behold, we get this second determination from CMS on that same case where they included the Actique. And the way that that played out was apparently the injury victim and his attorney had appealed the denial of the Actique through the Part D plan. And somehow there was a hearing where it was determined by the hearing officer that Actique in this case was actually being used in a medically necessary and reasonable fashion. Therefore, Medicare would cover it. So because of that collateral hearing that was taking place in terms of the coverage of that drug outside of the MSA, that had this crazy impact on the CMS determination. And the fact that CMS came back with the second number was very um, disturbing. So what we ended up doing, we ended up arguing that CMS was not able to modify that determination once we had properly finalized it. We did end up resolving it and settling it sort of outside of this whole CMS determination reissue situation. The key though, as an injury victim's attorney and the defense as well, is you have to be very cognizant of what this person is taking, if it's injury related and if it's something that's actually covered in the MSA. If you, as the attorney, look at your client's MSA and you know they're on Actique, but it's not in there, then you have to negotiate the funding of this Actique as a non-Medicare covered item. So, you know, the biggest takeaway is that you should know what people are taking. You should know what is going on in terms of Medicare covered, not Medicare covered. And you should be aware that sometimes CMS is actually going to come back and say, ah, forget that determination we issued. You know, we've got another one. 
So I don't know, Bridget and Jen, have you guys seen this in your practices? I have actually, and, and it was a little bit different in the situation that I had, CMS made a determination and then a few days later decided that that was not what they really wanted to do. So they issued kind of dual determinations and uh, we had to go back and, and really argue, you know, at that point we got that determination, the parties, even though it was not a lot of time passed, uh, the parties were, were settling, you know, they, they scheduled the hearing, everything was ready to go. And so we really had to fight that with CMS and, and say that we really relied on that determination when we were, you know, going forward. And I think the, the other thing, and we won, and, you know, CMS agreed and they stuck with the initial determination. But I think another thing that it brings up too is that MSA in and of itself and that timing of the MSA and when you're going to settle, try and settle your case, you know, close to that MSA uh, when you get that MSA. And sometimes you can't, sometimes you get an MSA that if you submit it to CMS, it blows up your case and it just remains dormant and you have this decision. The other thing that I think is really important from that too is once you settle your case, making sure you send in those settlement documents because you have a trail, right? You finalized it with CMS. So I think that's important as well. We understand that these are settlements and they're opposing parties, but truthfully, the CMS process works best when everybody understands what you're trying to accomplish and is, is on the same page. So Ross is right. Knowing you know what's out there, what needs to be completed, what CMS is going to be looking for, it's better to have those conversations going in than, than worrying about them you know, on the back end um, with CMS. And I think you know as we potentially transition over to liability, you know, more often liability or CMS is going to try and come out with liability again, I think then on the liability side, that's going to be even more important, right, is ha is having some type of, of structure and agreement between the parties before things potentially are just, you know, sent to CMS. Absolutely. If people choose to use the CMS review process, and the key is that, in my opinion, if the benefit of using CMS for the review process is that you can rely on their determination, this crazy stuff of issuing other determinations after you've, you know, you've properly finalized that first one is really counterproductive on the part of CMS, you know, yep. because why else would you do it? It's voluntary. Of course, you want to avoid a cost shift of injury related expenses to Medicare, but the insanity of submitting something to CMS, finalizing it, and then getting another one is preposterous, yep. I think. And the other thing with that too, so I think one of the reasons that CMS came out with the new language on the release, the consent form that, that the claimant has to sign, it's so they don't get claimants contacting them or claimants counsels contacting them saying, you know, I don't agree with the determination. And, and really, you know, I think in some ways you can argue that, you know, you had that form signed, the claimant signed that form. So I don't know if that's been been discussed yet with CMS or it's gone out as far as as, as if you get dual determinations, but it's something to think about at least. Yeah, definitely. So while we're still in kind of um, CMS submission uh, discussion, we get a lot of questions on when you do have that determination from CMS. And as Bridget said, sometimes you get them settled. Sometimes you just don't get them settled. So we get a lot of questions on the, what do you do if you have the CMS determination and now it is six months old, 
three years old, seven years old, 10 years old, you know, what do you do? So obviously we know, you know, one option there is the amended review process. You could go, you know, we can have that conversation, but you know, that requires really everything in the kitchen sink to be sent with them. It's got, you know, it, it follows a unique process. I guess what I'd more like to talk about is what if that's not available to you? What if the amended review were outside of the amended review process? What kinds of things are you looking for? What kinds of things are you talking to your um, clients about in that case? Rasa? So just to, to recap, this is a situation then where we have a CMS determination for whatever reason, the case doesn't settle and so many years go by that you can no longer do the amended review or it's just not going to work for you. What do you do? Right. I think one of the things that I believe I have heard mentioned in various discussions of this issue outside of the amended review is that really you can just fund that CMS determination and finalize it at that point years later, if that's what you want to do, because you do have the CMS determination. The other thought to me is that you have to keep the big picture in mind, which is avoiding a cost shift of injury related expenses to Medicare. If it is eight years later and the circumstances have dramatically changed, whether they're up or down in terms of injury related care at time of settlement, I would recommend that you get an update to show what the current situation is in terms of injury related care at time of settlement, which is eight years after the CMS determination. If the number is significantly lower and you can show why this number is appropriate and you fund it and likely it's gonna be properly exhausted. So you're never gonna be pushing things onto Medicare anyway. I believe that's a prudent course of action. And the alternative, if it's a higher number, I think the discussion could be that, you know, we do have a CMS determination. We recommend that you put this additional money aside because there is a chance that there might be an issue because you did not cost shift. And then you kind of throw your hand, you know, throw the cards up in the air and see what happens, whether, you know, there is an issue after the MSA funds are properly exhausted, should you choose not to kick in that additional money. But I, I think you have to be aware of what the potential issues are in that type of situation. What are your thoughts? I, I, I think you hit the key and that I do know there have been times where they have taken the, that determination and said, okay, well, the, the claimant has had this surgery and has done this amount and like subtracted from it. And mm -hmm. I'm not really very fond of that option because it's not doing that current, that current um, allocation to see what the fulsome picture is. So I agree with you that I think that's where you need to start from, is you need to know what that current medical is. Because now, if you're outside of that amended review process, that's a long period of time. That can be a, a very different medical circumstance. And so I think you need to start with a, a fresh allocation to see what that future looks like to begin with then you could start talking about comparing it to what was potentially in, in that older determination. But I, I do know, you know, there are, there are some cases that we've worked on that they essentially took it as a checklist and said, okay, well, they've done this, they've done that, they've done this. We only need to have X amount left in, in, you know, in the MSA. And I'm like, okay, but maybe they're on six additional medications that they were from last time. That could, you know, that's potentially a big problem. Well, I think that, you know, in that situation too, you know, if your thought is that you want to finalize that CMS determination eight years down the road, 
you have to show that you funded that specific determination. And really you're not funding it if you're deducting all the things that you paid for from there. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I agree with you both. I think you both hit the nail on the head with, with, you know, looking at the bigger picture and that's really important. And I think also, you know, documenting, you know, how you got to that bigger picture is really important to show, you know, if there is a court order uh, that changes the, the complexion of the case or uh, doctors, uh, treating doctors recommendations that have now changed in, in eight years or, or, you know, those years beyond the amended review process or, or just with the passage of time, you know, a lot of things can happen on a case. And so making sure that you're keeping in your files, all of that documentation, in addition to that MSA that establishes the rationale for it, I think is important too. I agree. Uh, anybody have anything else on the CMS submission um, process or quirkiness that they have uh, run into? I just uh, lately have noticed far too many development letters where the uh, review contractors looking for actual invoices for Hoyer lifts and hospital beds and things like that. And these actual invoices are not available. You know, the adjusters paid for this like ages ago. You have the payment histories. For Pete's sakes, just look at the usual and customary pricing for this durable medical equipment. It shouldn't be so complicated when there are resources to give you this information. So, and really, I know this is not a reason to bet. <laughs> I just <laughs> not out myself. It's early in the morning, but I mean, it makes sense to seek a development letter when truly you cannot get that information from within the corners of the documents that are submitted or within a, a usual and customary database, but to make it, to delay the settlement process for something like this just is, is frustrating. And I know that's, the development lenders are, are a frustration really across the board, right? For the, especially for the um, adjusters, the defense attorneys who, who, while they maybe do, you know, deal with submissions quite often, it's not that actual submission piece. And so I know, um, you know, we do spend a lot of time also explaining to clients, yes, we submitted this, but, you know, they have to have all the column totals and they have to have the totals on the bottom. On the, and so it, I, I do know that is, that is a big uh, frustration. And so that's another one where the most that you can do up front and get prepared for, I think, you know, and make sure the parties understand. We do that a lot too, right? We, we understand what you're sending to us. We will go ahead and send it to them, but be prepared for the fact that they're potentially going to come back and ask for additional information. So again, expectation setting, the important part, right? Yep. And, and I think that really comes into play with these $0 waivers so much with those, that expectation, managing those expectations and, you know, those specific criteria for submitting a request for a zero waiver to CMS. And we've said a long time, it's, it's, an art, not a science sometimes, because there are a lot of moving parts to it. And sometimes, you know, if you're working in as an attorney or you're in the claims division, you're just looking at the, the facts of the case and not understanding why this is so much, you know, there's so much needed for it. And so it's really our job to kind of explain that and work through that and help navigate that. So I thought maybe the other area we could talk about is kind of more of the, how you get into the process and things like, for instance, we get a lot of questions 
about Medi- uh, Medicare beneficiaries for, uh, you know, whether or not green card, um, green card holders have access to the system, or um, I know we've had some tribal questions or um, uh, Amish, uh, uh, Amish people and going through um, kind of that process. And then kind of getting them on and whether they're into the system. And then also we tend to get a lot of those questions on the, on the backside once the cases are settled and we're dealing with people who are potentially going back to um, home countries. Or I had a gentleman who really, really wanted to use his MSA funds to go up to buy his prescriptions in Canada because they were um, definitely cheaper. And, and then he should be able to then save that difference and, and have that as free spending on, on the backside of the administration. So um, we kind of <laughs> walked through the what you can spend your Medicare set-aside funds for and how it's not Canadian medications and you don't ever get to pocket the difference on whatever it is you potentially yourself save in that you don't get it as free spending. Yes, you get to keep it in your, you know, as part of your MSA funds to potentially use for other things, but, it, but any savings that you personally get on on any of the difference in the net pricing does, does not then accrue to you as the uh, claimant. Um, uh, Bridget, I know you've had over the years some, some quirky situations that are, that are like this. Yes, uh, actually, and, and really you have to dig deep in those situations to, to see what, what the obligations are. And sometimes the obligations are just medical in general, right? It, it's outside of Medicare because certain individuals or religious sects, which was the situation I had, really aren't involved in that Medicare governmental process. And, you know, even the way they go about uh, settling a case and the use of, you know, getting more money than, than what those medicals are, are something that, that is not usually a part of some, some certain sects uh, when they, when they um, are trying to resolve issues. And so, um, really, you have to look and see, you know, what what are the Medicare obligations, and then what are the obligations in general for medical? And sometimes there is that broader view that you need to have in these cases, and and it goes back to kind of what Rasa was saying with the attique. You know, it might not be something that's covered by Medicare, or the individual may not be on Medicare, but it's certainly a consideration for settlement. And um, I think. You know, one of the things too, when people move out of the country, that's also interesting because under the Medicare regulations, you know, Medicare will only cover uh, expenditures, medical expenditures in foreign countries if it's there, if there's an emergency situation that happens. So, you know, understanding in those cases, yeah, you, you still have a medical obligation if the individual is, is moving, but, uh, you know, what's that Medicare obligation? And, even with cases, you know, I, I remember long, long time ago when I first started and you just assumed everybody was Medicare eligible at a certain age, you know, the, and you're just like, oh, well, they're of course on Medicare. And, you know, you do have situations where, where people are not on Medicare. So you're, you really have to figure out why. Uh, and then what are the obligations beyond that? talked about the the green card holder and i know um that there are situations where if they've been in the country for instance like five years i think there's there's the possibility where they can essentially buy quarters 
if they're not to the to the full 40 quarters. And so um, you're right that there oftentimes there's detective work really that needs to be done to find out exactly, you know, what that situation is. Cause because people call us and say, okay, you know, I have this person who's not a citizen, but can they eventually get it? Well, you just not a citizen doesn't doesn't help you. You really need to go do the the searching through what exactly it, you know, is there um standing you know, what has been their work? How long have they been in the country? You know, those kind of things. And I know one of the topics that we're going to talk about next year on the pod is actually this. We're going to do some deeper dives into that, not only the Medicare eligibility and how you get on that. And, and also the flip side of that is when people get off of Medicare and now they're back in the workforce and do what do you do for situations like that? but also the social security disability status. So we're gonna do some deeper dives into those because I think even I know for myself, even as long as we've been doing this, every case is different and you will pop up with something inevitably that you've never seen before and have to work your way through. Yes. So just to kind of pick up on Bridget's point of when you have somebody who has Medicare set aside and they move out of the country, they go back to their home country or whatever the case may be, you know, as Bridget pointed out, like Medicare will only cover certain things when you are in a foreign country. But if you have a Medicare set aside and you kind of think about the fact that you can have this pocket of money even before you're actually on Medicare, you know, people with a reasonable expectation of Medicare entitlement, and you're using these funds, even though Medicare isn't going to be covering what, because you're not on Medicare. So you can kind of stretch it to if you have an MSA for future injury-related Medicare covered treatment, whether you're on Medicare or not at the time is kind of irrelevant. You know, if the treatment that you are receiving in the foreign country is injury-related, it is of a nature that Medicare would cover, I think there's a good argument for, yeah, use the money, document it. You know, it's sitting there. Because what if you never go back to the US where, or to a situation where you would have Medicare coverage? You know, you as the you know, it's a waste. So I think there are a lot of different creative ways you can argue this. I think that, you know, in the situation when you have um, an employee who may not necessarily be a legitimate, proper, properly in the country employee, and they're using somebody else's social security number or Medicare number, I think it's really important to just have a discussion about the potential conditional payments. Because if conditional payments were made under this fake number that does not belong to the person that's working for you, you are going to have to address them. And then there could potentially be a whole set of issues if the real Medicare number person has an accident. So that's where I've seen, you know, opening a can of worms can come up in that scenario. So, so, and this is really why I love MSP because there are so many kind of off the wall situations where you have to really analyze and think about the big picture in terms of what does the MSP Act intend to prevent? Well, yeah, it's that whole getting back to claims thing, right? It is every case is, is absolutely different. The, the, you know, as much as you think it's, uh, you know, left knee, right shoulder, you did one of those last week. Every, you know, it's going to be different. It's going to be in a different state. They're going to have a different treatment. It's good. It, everything is different. So you're right. That is one of the things that that's always been great about our work is it certainly isn't um, dull or monotonous, right? Right. Right. (laughs) For sure. Ladies, are there any other quirky scenarios that you want to, that you want to cover before we go? 
Jen, there are so many. I like, (laughs) I mean, this seems to be a good place to stop, but it's always a pleasure to discuss and roundtable these MSP compliance issues with you. It is. So thank you for joining us and thank you for setting aside some time with us today. We'll look forward to everything that we have going on in 2022. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. you.